hello and welcome to a uh, late evening or for uh, our guest, a early morning interview. Uh, we've got Kane from Synthetics. Kane Warwick has come on to uh, talk about V3. So welcome. Hey, guys. Yeah. So uh, V3 was announced a couple of weeks back, and uh, I think there's been a pretty good reception um, across of uh, across the community. I mean, the narrative has uh, been pretty good uh, over these past few months, and it seems like Synthetics is finally coming into its uh, finally coming out swinging, right? Um, especially with the uh, advent of all these like on-chain perps and stuff, but. Uh, you know, I know that that you came from a payments background, and originally, I think there was some idea that uh, what you were creating with Haven, and then with the early parts of Synthetics, um, and creating these like spot markets, that it essentially potentially could replace the uh, payments infrastructures that you saw at the time. So, um, you know, there's been this shift now where I think the like the payments have been taken over by stablecoins, right? Like those are great; they work really well. Um, and so it's kind of like left uh, synthetics asking questions over the past few years of like, where do we go? And where you've ended up is with like perps and uh, everything that's coming with V3. Um, how do you see the direction of uh, synthetics, like where it is today uh, versus like where you started uh, what, back in like what, 20, I think it was 20, uh, 16, 17 when you were working payments? Yeah, um, I, you know, I guess the the idea behind Haven was that if you have a stable coin, it needs some kind of like sustainable revenue model, right? Um, you know, and uh, at the time in, in a low interest rate environment, you know, just putting a bunch of money in the bank wasn't necessarily going to, to do that, right? Like Tether kind of had that approach, but the sense... That, in the industry, I guess, at the time was that, you know, Tether was really almost like a loss leader, right? Um, that, you know, it was there to facilitate money movement, um, you know, in and out of Bitfinex and other exchanges and made trading much easier, right? And so if you're running a, an exchange and you had uh, access to Tether, your fees would be higher, right? So like it was, you know, it wasn't a service that was designed to make money. I think now, um, it appears that you know Tether does make money from their operations, right? It's, it's pretty obvious. Um, you know, obviously, interest rates going up makes that much easier as well, right? Uh, they don't pay any interest to stable holders, um, you know, but they generate interest from holding assets. And uh, you know, Maker had a stablecoin design that was going to pay interest to holders and you know, like capture spread. And you know, there's some ideas. And I think that the approach that we took with Haven was. Well, you know, we have closed loop payment networks, um, you know, uh, American Express you know, being an obvious one, PayPal um, you know, being another. And now I, you know, I think there's, there's quite a few more, um, although they are becoming more integrated over time. But, you know, American Express is, is probably the best example, I'd say, in terms of longevity. And it was just like, hey, you know, here's a system that can be used for payments. And, you know, we charge uh, merchants for accepting payments using this much better payment system than writing a check or paying cash or whatever the alternatives were. Um, and so, you know, if you could take that same model and, and make a crypto version of it, which is what Haven was, um, then in theory that should work. Um, now, the reality is that building, you know, adoption around a, a new payment network is quite difficult. Um, and, you know, when you throw in crypto on top and, and the challenges around, you know, crypto infrastructure, it's, it's even harder. 
Um, and I think that, you know, it's possible in the future that payment, you know, all payments are, are happening in stable coins. Um, and it's probably unlikely that fees will be charged for that. But, you know, the relationship between merchants and a payment network uh, needs to have some kind of, you know, uh, financial component in my mind, right? Like mm -hmm. it still, it still seems weird that you just have this like free service that's being offered. Um, maybe it works. Like maybe, you know, that just works and, and you know, you can make enough money from holding treasuries that you can give away the payment side of the business. Um, you know, businesses evolve and, and maybe that's where it's going to evolve. And certainly from an adoption perspective, you know, from a merchant, if you turned up as, um, you know, circle and said, hey, um, if you accept stable coins, we're not going to charge you anything. Um, you know, that's going to be pretty strong competitive advantage versus, you know, Visa, you know, MasterCard, et cetera. Yeah. And so like when you look at the kind of early versions of synthetics and focusing on spot markets, I mean, that's a really hard market to compete. Especially like if you look at like Robinhood or other service providers, zero essentially. So, you know, if you're further down the, the, the creek, right, trying to pick up volumes, uh, it becomes a lot harder. But once you're able to add leverage to that and essentially build these, these perp markets, then it becomes interesting again. Yeah, I think, you know, what we realized is that after USCC launched and there was a, a regulated-ish stable point out there, um, it was going to be hard for us to compete with that um, because the primary use case was going to be crypto payments within crypto, right? Like we didn't think that we we're going to turn up with Haven and, you know, get Best Buy using it or Amazon like 20 minutes later, right? Like it was going to be a, a long, slow grind to like get that adoption and the, and the primary adoption was going to come in um, in inside the crypto ecosystem. And you know, USDT already existing and then add USDC if you were scared of USDT became a very challenging marketplace to operate in. And so I think we just looked at it and said payments are not going to be the thing that's going to drive synthetics. Let's, um, you know, migrate to trading basically and enable multi-currency stable coins that you can trade between, um, you know, and then you get into like FX cross-border transfers and stuff like that, right? Um, again, it's still a challenging you know, battle to win, right? And it turns out that it's easier to just kind of keep going upstream until we landed in like perp trading, basically, where it's like, you know, this is a thing that generates enough uh, transaction volume and enough fees in and of itself within the crypto ecosystem that you don't really need to go outside of it. Um, now, maybe once you nail that and it's really working and, you know, it's great, you can go back downstream and try and, you know, take on some of those use cases that at the time were probably too challenging. Um, Maybe we do that, maybe we don't. I don't, I don't know what the future holds, but you know, at the moment, the focus is capture the, the you know, revenue that exists in the ecosystem today, which is perps trading. Well, Gary, you've been covering, uh, I mean, you cover the Curve ecosystem every single day. What's been your impression of how SUSD has evolved in those markets? So it's been uh, pretty phenomenal to watch, uh, especially since the advent of the atomic swaps. Uh, many of which are rooted through the Curve US, uh, sorry, not the SUSD pools um, through Curve's ecosystem. It's been like, uh, like just watching it idly, I'm astounded because it's like casual 100 million, 200 million dollar volume days. Um, so like, I'm actually just as much in on uh, kind of wondering what's the secret, uh, what's the magic that's uh, in your impression really driven these like massive eye popping numbers. I mean. You know, there was, a, there was a period where it looked like uh, atomic swaps via curve, um, you know, were going to be a, a pretty big deal. 
Um, and it may still end up that those, you know, those atomic swaps, um, you know, so atomic swaps talking about essentially bridging the gap between cur two current pools. You know, you've got a current pool with BTC, you've got a current pool with USD and people want to go from one to the other. There wasn't really a great route um, to go you know, through one inch or cow swap or, or whatever, right? Um, and so synthetics was that, you know, route, basically. It, it kind of connected those two things. Um, I think that over time, Uniswap became more competitive. Um, you know, uh, fees went lower. It'll be interesting to see with V4 whether that shifts in the other direction, you know, because I would argue that some of the economics for LPs in some of these large pools are, are maybe not sustainable. Um, and, you know, that's starting to become obvious. Like maybe, you know, a one bit fee is, is just not going to work for, um, you know, LPs over time, right? So if that, um, you know, if that happens and that shifts and it shifts back up, then maybe the equilibrium changes, right? And, and you know, the atomic swaps become more viable again. Um, but, you know, there was, yeah, there was definitely a, a period of time where the best place to do a $25 million USDC to um, wrap Bitcoin trade was, you know, via atomic swaps. Um, there wasn't really any place that came close to competing. Has there been any discussions in the synthetics community about getting SUSD added as a, like, base pool asset? <laughs> um, you know, there's a long uh, history, I'll say, between uh, synthetics and curve, right? Um, you know, sometimes fraught history. Um, and in the early days, as this sort of discussion was playing out, I think that for a number of reasons, SUSD was put, um, you know, in, into a category of slightly higher risk, right? Which I think was fair at the time, mm -hmm. you know, back in whatever it was. Um, you know, pre-DeFi summer. Um, I think over time it's proven that it's pretty robust. I think, you know, it, it hasn't had a, a you know, 5% plus or minus DPEG for you know, several years now. Um, you know, there were some issues on optimism, but obviously that was low liquidity. But on mainnet, I think it's been pretty stable if you look at the, uh, the chart for, you know, the last several years, uh, more stable than, you know, even some of the um, semi-regulated stable coins, right? They've had DPEG events, um, you know, for the last few years um, based on you know, fears of collateral value, et cetera. So, you know, we got put into a meta pool. Um, I think it's just, it's stayed like that for a long time. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, like getting SUSD adoption, I would say from the community has not been the primary uh, goal, you know, over, over the last few years. Um, it's really been trying to get, you know, these exchanges working. Um, and I think, the thought process was once the exchanges work, then, you know, the stablecoin becomes, you know, pretty valuable in and of itself. Um, but, you know, we'll see. There's some ideas in, in V3 that I think will enable us to potentially scale the stablecoin, you know, using um, these like Delta neutral strategies of like wrapped ETH and, um, you know, ETH perps. Um, and so I think we might see a resurgence in that, that kind of, go to market strategy of let's see if we can get this stable point scaled up. And, you know, the reality is right when you, when you look at it, so, you know, um, almost every stable coin that has scale somehow touches USDC, mm -hmm. right. Um, you know, and USDC has some unfortunate properties, right. As a stable coin would, you know, it can be blacklisted. Um, you know, it, it's, um, not necessarily redeemable um, for dollars um, by anyone. Um, you know, it, it, there's there's definitely some issues. It's not a, a purely decentralized stablecoin. It's a very good stablecoin for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, but if you want a decentralized stablecoin, it doesn't work. 
and obviously with you know a big chunk of DAI being backed by USDC, you kind of inherit those problems with you know that you have with USDC. Same thing you know with Frax and you know anything that's using USDC as collateral is inheriting those unfortunate properties, right? Um, and so I do think that all things being equal, if you could get to um, you know parity in terms of uh, you know liquidity and, and you know, all of those things with USDC, a lot of decentralization maximus would be very happy to use SUSD. Um, but we just haven't been able to get there. And it hasn't been the focus. But you know, as I say, in, in the future, maybe it becomes more of a focus. Yeah, one of my favorite commentators on Twitter is uh, JP Koenig. And he's got this like iron law of decentralization that the more decentralized something it is, the higher volatility it has. And so like trying to build a perfectly stable asset uh, is incredibly hard, <laughs> even for the best builders. Like we went through this for the past like two to three years in in DeFi summer, and then in 2021, 22, where like everybody was trying to like build the perfect algo stable. And uh, you know, there's only been a few uh, survivors. You don't even need to reach perfection, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just just building one that uh, actually you know functions for a while is, is yeah, impressive, let alone perfection. Yeah. Uh, so. You mentioned like the collateral types that are coming to V3. Um, what like what exactly is uh, how is it actually being used? Because I know that for the longest time uh, you've been very set on having uh, like SNX uh, function as kind of the backing for like the backing collateral for uh, synthetics. So like what's yeah. what's changed? Like do, what limits did you guys run into with using SNX as collateral, and and uh, you know what forced that change? So we, we've had alternative collaterals for a, a while in, in the form of, um, you know, ETH lending, which was mm -hmm. one of the earlier versions where, you know, you could borrow SUSD against ETH, um, but it was kind of cauterized. It wasn't part of the debt pool. It was its own independent thing. Then you kind of use the SUSD to join the debt pool. Um, and, you know, we had uh, wrappers for ETH um, and um, uh, Ren BTC for a while. So, like, we've dabbled with this. You know, it hasn't, like... It, it hasn't been a situation where SNX has been the only collateral for, um, you know, for the entire history. And I guess the question, why have we dabbled in this? Like, you know, because SNX at various times, you know, the market cap's been as low as $5 million, right? Um, and, you know, when you've got a uh, collateral with a, a max capacity of, you know, even if it's an order back, even if it's $50 million, right? you're not going to get very far. Um, and so as we were scaling up, we would just hit, up against limits, right? Um, and you know there were times where there just wasn't sufficient SUSD, and you know Curve was a big driver of this, right? Um, you know we had a hundred million dollars worth of SUSD in one pool, and then you know a hundred million dollars worth of uh, SBTC in another pool, and then three hundred million dollars worth of SETH in another pool, and they were constantly fighting each other for you know which one could get the most assets in it, right? Like you know who's routing more uh, volume through which pool on any given day. And, you know, it just, we didn't have capacity, right? Um, if we had the capacity, I think those things would have scaled up to, you know, maybe half a billion dollars, potentially TBL in each of those pools, right? Um, and so I do think that we introduced wrappers as, you know, a partial attempt to alleviate that situation, you know, the curve situation in particular. Um, and, and, you know, like to the best of my knowledge today, I think BTC is the largest driver. Um, uh, you know, at the moment, um, in, in terms of, um, I, I guess, like curve TDL within the synthetics ecosystem, it's not even SUSD, right? So it has shifted over time. And so the idea was, okay, well, let's wrap an asset so we can get more of 
SBTC, you know, and, and get more uh, supply out into the market. The problem with wrappers is it does create uh, risk for the debt pool, you know, because all of the SNX LPs are uh, basically, you know, counter trading the debt pool, right? They're, they're exposed to the, the debt pool directionality. And so over time, what happened is people were wrapping ETH putting it into, uh, you know, the curve pools, and then it was getting routed out into, um, you know, the stables pool, for example, because we didn't have a stable coin wrapper, we only had an ETH wrapper, and people wanted more stables. And, you know, so you get all these weird, you know, uh, second order effects, third order effects. And the end result was that uh, we were basically long ETH when we should have been short ETH, and short ETH when we should have been long ETH, and the debt pool suffered because of that. Um, now, the solution in V3 is don't wrap ETH and, you know, have like a, a delta neutral, uh, sorry, a, a, like a skew, right? You want it to be delta neutral. You don't want there to be a skew. You don't want it to be short or long ETH. And so these stablecoin wrappers, um, you know, we're never going to, to get there. Whereas in V3, you can kind of build something um, that is delta neutral and does scale. Um, and so, you know, I think that introducing external collateral is not necessarily the problem. It's like the implications of doing that. Right now, there's a there's another component of this. There's a big debate about you know do you undermine the value prop of SNX when it's not the primary collateral, right? Um, you know, if you had five billion dollars, let's say, of SUSD that was all backed by like a, a delta neutral uh, ETH wrapper, right? You wouldn't have the skew problem, so that's cool. You would have scale now. You got five billion dollars worth of SUSD. That's all great. So you know everyone's happy about that. Um, but what happens to poor SNX? If it's not the primary collateral, that's the concern, right? Uh, that it undermines the the value prop, and you know, I'm I tend to kind of agree with that argument. On on you know, uh, it is important that the governance token uh, of a, a protocol has value and, and drives value, right? And if you undermine that value prop, then you can undermine the entire kind of flywheel that you're trying to build. Um, so I think that there is some concern around that and it's, and it's reasonable and we're going to need to tread very lightly. We've wrecked ourselves many times in the past by doing experiments that don't play out well. And so I think in the future, the experiments are going to be a little bit more cautious. And then you're also looking at a uh, multi-collateral, if that's uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, multi-collateral staking for V3. Could you talk a bit more yeah, about so how it works and some of the risk management and hedging strategies? Yeah, so this is, I guess, this is the primary uh, sort of decision point here, right? You know, do you allow people to join uh, as an LP using ETH, right, um, in V3? Like, in principle, it's allowed. Um, the question then is, like, functionally, how much do you allow? Do you, you know, do you allow a small amount? Do you allow any? Do you, you know, what, how do you uh, handle fees? Um, because, you know, synthetics is weird, right? <clears throat> it's coming from the opposite direction of almost, I mean, it's weird in a lot of ways, but it's coming from the opposite direction of almost every protocol, right? Uniswap, there's this whole argument of like, do we take any of the money from the LPs? What if they revolt, right? Synthetics, the LPs are the token holders. It's the same group of people, right? Um, and so it's like, do we open up our little club that we've created and allow different types of LPs in, right? Like that's the question. Right. And, you know, the answer at the moment is, well, we might have to. OK. And then what does that look like? How do we split the fees with them? You know, so for us, it's like, do we, you know, like kind of take the fee switch off or something like that? Right. You know, not do we turn it on. Do we like let it, you know, do we dial it back the, the fee, you know, the, the fee kind of lever? Do we like dial it back a little bit? Um, and 
there's some hardline people within the synthetics community that are like, absolutely not. You know, um, we're just getting this thing to work. Let's let's not devalue the the, the primary value prop of SNX, the token. So, you're, um, so is, that, is that because there's like the some negative convexity with the uh, with the token, where like as the price yeah, of synthetics goes down, volumes yeah. drop, and then when the volumes drop, then you're collecting less fees, and so the addition of these like multi collateral assets, in theory, should help. Uh, I guess, normalize the, the fee collection. So there's a, you know, you can kind of run the thought experiment. Let's say you could flick, you know, you just, you click your fingers, right? And you go from a world where 95% of the collateral, you know, backing these assets is SNX, right? And there's a, an amount of fees, let's call it, you know, a million dollars a day in fees, right? Um, and, you know, the vast, vast majority is backed by SNX. And then you click your fingers and let's say, it's $100 million a day in fees, right? But now 95% of the assets are backed by ETH, mm -hmm. right? Um, how do you split the fees in such a way that the, you know, the fee yield for SNX doesn't go down, right? You know, if you give 100% of those fees to, uh, to, you know, these new LPs who join, right? And you don't give any of them to SNX, well then, you know, like you're still kind of better off, but you've left a lot of money on the table in theory, right? Like that's kind of the argument, right? Um, and so it's like, well, what if we could have gotten SNX, you know, 20X larger, right? Like what if we could have scaled up SNX and instead now we're stuck in this reality where the vast majority of collateral is ETH and we don't really get any money from that. There's no revenue stream to it. The nice thing about that, you know, the, this kind of uh, ETH backed reality, right, is you are far less likely to have a death spiral, right? Because you don't have the situation where volumes go down, SNX value goes down, collateral value goes down, and, you know, that, that unwinding, right? And I talked about that on Twitter a few weeks ago, right? So if you replace all the SNX collateral with um, ETH and SNX is just a governance token, well, then the price of SNX is not really relevant to the safety and security of the network, right? Uh, which I think some people within the community think would be a great idea. Um, I'm not necessarily one of them, right? You know, I'm a bit more DJ than that. I think that, you know, we can we can make SNX work uh, a little bit more effectively. I mean, you guys you guys have shifted a lot of synthetics over to optimism uh, over the past while. And, you know, one thing that optimism is able to do is generate huge amounts of fees for its sequencers for the transactions that your traders are generating. Um, it would seem that, like, one thing that, synthetics could do is like launch their own network, become their own L2, you know, be a, an app chain like DYDX where all of that uh, sequencer income would go back to the, you know, what, the SNX hour or something. Um, like what is it like what led that that partnership with with Optimism? Like I know you guys have worked pretty close with them. Uh, and, you know, is there any discussions or has, has there ever been any discussions to like build that sort of app chain that I was talking about? Yeah, I mean, you know, the super chain uh, kind of thesis only really emerged recently, right? I think if Optimism had turned up, you know, to the synthetics Discord two years ago and said, hey, guys, would you like us to build your own scaling network that you can own and, you know, generate all the revenue from? I think the answer probably would have been yes, right? But that offer wasn't really on the table back then. Um, it was like, hey, we're going to scale Ethereum together and, you know, we need, uh, you know, complex smart contract system to kind of battle hard in this thing. And, you know, it was a very symbiotic relationship that we, we built with Optimism to kind of get there. Um, and I think that, you know, both projects are, are far better off 
for that today. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, with the introduction of base and this idea of, you know, the, the super chain and having the optimism stack um, kind of, you know, drive all of this activity. Yes, that becomes, you know, much, uh, much more um, interesting and, and much more, you know, even likely, I would say. But it's not like there haven't been options, right? Like, you know, I remember, um, you know, being at like uh, ETH Berlin or, um, you know, one of the one of the conferences in Berlin you know, years ago and um, Polkadot talking about parachains and, you know, the first parachain auction was going to happen. And, you know, we had a conversation that evening, right, over dinner of like, what would it look like for synthetics to, you know, be its own parachain? Thank God we didn't do that, but, you know, we could have, right? And so, you know, the 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 counter to that has always been we kind of want to live where the activity is, right? And, you know, when when um, you look at things like atomic swaps by a curve, if you live in your own siloed little reality and curve's not there, well, that doesn't even happen, right? And, you know, you may not even realize that it's a possibility. For me, composability is, um, you know, something where you don't necessarily know what you're going to get out of it. You just throw a whole bunch of things into a blender and blend it up and then see what it tastes like afterwards, right? Um, you know, it's it's you get more out than, than you put in, I would say. And so when people start kind of hiding off and going into their own little siloed, um, you know, uh, networks, I think you lose that composability and, and you lose some of the serendipitous emergent properties of, of, you know, crypto, right? Like one of the big things is barriers to entry being lower. Right. The barriers to entry is higher because we're all operating, you know, a pseudo database, even if it's, you know, open and transparent, but it's you know, basically our own database we're all hanging out on. Um, I think we've broken something fundamental in my mind. It's hmm. an interesting point because there's, you know, the narrative over the past uh, like six months really has just been like app chains, L2s, L3s, like we're pushing everything further away, like sequencers, like ZK, like everything is just, you know, uh, like pushing everything off ETH. And I I think people still have some like PTSD back when ETH gas prices were like 200 to 300 for a couple of months. Um, you know, we're probably like lulled back into it now that gas prices are low again, but uh, that's probably just a, a, a transient period that we're in right oh, now like it's so it's one of the most transient things i think you could ever imagine like ETH gas prices are ready to blow up at, like at in a moment's notice right like it you know it's funny because we're kind of seeing at this like just capacity threshold right this is like dynamic equilibrium where like you know right now everyone can kind of wait like there's not really that much urgency for most people's transactions, right? And so, you know, it kind of just sits below this threshold. It, it is extremely reflexive though, right? Like one thing where people are not willing to wait and the whole thing just like blows up again, right? Um, and so, you know, all it takes is like one NFT minting event, one dumb meme coin or whatever, and, you know, gas prices will spike. Like we'll never get back to a reality, I think, where you can throw you know, there's no demand capacity, right? Like there's no, sorry, there's no capacity left, right? For, you know, extra demand. If there's any more demand, capacity, we hit capacity and it just spikes up again. So there's no question in my mind, we need to have scaling solutions. Like we need L2s and we need, you know, other solutions. Uh, it's just a question of, you know, we're still getting better at how we think about that. You know, we haven't had them for that long. We still need to, to do a better job, but, you know, at some point in the future, we're going to have an influx of new users we have to be ready this time. We don't want them to, you know, all drift off to Solana land and, you know, SBFs, you know, 
yeah. House, House of Horrors or <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Like we just, you know, we want to keep people in the Ethereum ecosystem, um, you know, where it might not be safe, but it's safer. So uh, one of the things that Synthetics V3 is promising is a simpler and cleaner developer experience. As a dev myself, I'm really curious to know, like, what specifically are you looking to optimize or improve about the process? So is this going to be like more tooling um, or kind of like, you know, just, just talk about the resources that you think might be coming down the line? Yeah, so, you know, I'm not an engineer, so I'm, I'm probably not the best person to really like dig into what, you know, what that looks like and, and why it is better. Um, but I, one thing that I will say is when in 2018 we started designing these initial contracts, um, you know, the, most of the tooling didn't exist that exists today, right? So you had to do things that you just don't need to do today, right? Um, and one of the examples is proxy contracts. So the proxy contract architecture for uh, synthetics has been completely redesigned um, from scratch and it's much better, much simpler, much clearer what's going on. Um, you know, I made a joke um, the other day, I was like reading through some of the docs for V3 and, you know, one of the function calls uh, in the contracts is like buy, sell, right? Like it's just like a very clear function call, like, you know, buy and sell, um, depending on you know, where you are in the pool or, or whatever. Um, and the equivalent call in um, uh, Synthetics V2 is like um, transfer via proxy alternative to or something like that. And it's just like, it's, you know, so much stuff is like built up over time that like for an engineer, and probably the most practical example of how hard this is, is anyone who's trying to do analytics on synthetics, um, you cannot work out what something does, right? Like you just need all of this like esoteric knowledge to work out like what is the implication of this function call? Like where does it route through? Where does it end up? What are the things that it you know impacts, etc. Um, and so obviously all of that's been cleaned up in V3 because it's been redesigned from scratch. And so you don't have things bolted on to other things and you know a lot of duct tape and, and weirdness. So I just think from like a readability perspective in terms of the code and like what it does, what the intention is, uh, because the intention is what it is, as opposed to the intention three years ago was this, and then we changed it to that, then we changed it back, and then we added this other thing. And, you know, it's it's like any code base, it's, you know, V2 has gotten out of hand, I would say. So I'm looking at the like synthetics platform, you know, one of the things about V3 is that it's not just being built for like a singular purpose. It's becoming modular and really becoming the base and foundation for others to build on top. I mean, you have um, several different apps that are integrated into the, the synthetics uh, core functionality and they're building their own systems on it. I know we mentioned Curve, but you know, there's also like Quinta and Lyra and, and DHedge and stuff. Um, how has that evolution taken place? Um, like in, in, do you think that we've, like kind of even scratch the surface of what these apps are going can be built on top, or um, are we already at like a intermediate development phase for for synthetics? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, the fact that we have been able to do as much as we have in V two, I think um, you know, and things like atomic swaps are a great example, right? Um, even perps. Like perps are built on v2 right now and you know v2 is not a great thing to build on um so there were a whole bunch of constraints and considerations that you know, needed to be made um you know compromises in, in building the existing version of perps because it's sitting on v2 
you move that to V3, um, you know, that shifts and it becomes much easier. And so I, my, my sense is that this is not like a, a you know, quantitative change. It's a qualitative change. Like this is a different type of system to build on. Um, and so we've seen a lot of experimentation um, and a lot of interesting things emerge out of the synthetics ecosystem, but it's been a lot of work. It's been really hard. You need to you know, dig in and, and really understand the system. What synthetics V3 does is lower the barriers to entry to building on synthetics and makes it really easy. And I think that probably some of the more interesting things that are going to come out will be tooling to help someone who's not an engineer leverage uh, synthetics V3 to do something, right? Like in an ideal world, what you want is someone who's a financial engineer, right? Um, who understands financial engineering, who understands like derivative structuring or, you know, like, um, you know, structured products or whatever, right? Whatever weird thing, and they've got some idea, um, but they're not necessarily engineer. And so you have the tooling for them to be like, okay, well, if I take this price feed and this price feed and combine them, and this is my, you know, formula that I'm applying to it, and you know, I want, you know, these uh, kind of guardrails or whatever, they can build some new product and launch it on V3 without needing to, you know, code a set of smart contracts. Um, and I think someone. Uh, someone said recently, one of the engineers was like, almost every DeFi product that exists today that is an independent product, you could build on V3. It's that modular, like it, it's that you know open. Um, and so that to me, I think is pretty exciting because to build a DeFi protocol today still takes a lot of work. You know, there's a lot of effort, there's audits, there's, you know, you got to start from scratch and build the entire contract infrastructure. Um, so just to be able to turn up and do the financial engineering and not have to do the solidity engineering, I think will really open up the experimentation. How much like legacy code do you guys have that you've had to work through at this point? <laughs> <laughs> I, it's pretty horrific. I, I don't, I couldn't tell you like lines of code, um, <laughs> but you know, the, there's, I think something like 150 plus contracts on mainnet right now. Um, you know, and again, it's just because we made that decision early on to have proxy contracts and have upgradability, what it meant is that it was always easier to add something to the existing system than to like draw a line, draw a hard line and be like, all right, enough is enough. Let's rebuild this and redesign it. Right. Mm -hmm. But at some point in the last 18 months, we hit that line where we're like, okay, enough is enough, no more. Let's redesign this thing from scratch. Unfortunately, we also kept adding to V2X, right? And you know, we're like, all right, we're gonna do five more things. And then it, you know, we do those five things and we're like, all right, these are the last five things, like no more things. We even got to a point where within our SIPs repo, we said, there's no more SIPs after 300, right? We were up to like SIP 280, something like that. And we're like, all right, there's 20 more SIPs. That's all you get. You have to really, you know, make sure that they're really important SIPs. And then it got to the point where it blew out past that and we had to go to SIP 2000 because we were already using all the SIPs for V3. And so, you know, it's just a, a cluster basically, um, you know, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff there that, uh, that I think, you know, everyone would be very happy to just, you know, mothball it, say that was an amazing thing and an amazing time period in the project and in DeFi. And now we can move on with our lives and, and build on this new thing. So with the with the new V3 contracts, uh, anybody will be able to create a market, right? Um, if you, if Initially, so permissionless markets are a thing, yeah. right? Like you can build permissionless markets. Um, there will be some constraints that governance imposes um, in terms of, you know, um, like, uh, an example would be like Oracle 
interfaces, right? Like whatever Oracle use will need to conform to a specific interface, right? Mm -hmm. Which has been designed. So, you know, it might be a pull Oracle or push Oracle or whatever, um, but you know, you won't just be able to like send a transaction into the market to like update the price, for example, right? Like you'll, you'll need to be some, there's some constraints. Um, but other than that, you can kind of do whatever you want. Um, that said, permissionless markets probably will roll out over time as you know, some of the other stuff, like this is being done you know, uh, in a kind of step, um, stepwise fashion. And so, you know, spot markets are rolling out. We're gonna have some Delta neutral stuff. We're probably gonna have probes V3. Different things are gonna roll out at different times. And I think permissionless markets probably will be a little bit later in the roadmap. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a, quite a, a feat to get to. Um, I know you talked about oracles. I, will it be open for like, do you have to be approved as an oracle? Like how, how will that oracle uh, governance or like, Meta governance work. Yeah, so um, there will be an inter an Oracle interface you'll have to conform to, right? That's mm -hmm. already built, um, and obviously the the two Oracles that we use now, um, you know, Chainlink and Pith, both conform to that Oracle you know um, interface. Um, most Oracles are close enough that you know, you probably build like a, an adapter or whatever. Um, there will be no constraints in terms of what you can connect to that you know, once you have a permissionless market, right? And so then there's, so as soon as you do that, right? As soon as you have, you know, and like Uniswap's had this problem for a long time, right? Like, what do you do with permissionless markets and rugs? And, you know, people create, you know, um, pools with rug tokens that are non-transferable and, you know, all kinds of weird stuff, right? Where you can't like, you know, withdraw the tokens and, you know, they can, they control the price and they've got all the supply and, you know, all kinds of weird stuff like that. That is an attack vector that will exist that hasn't existed in synthetics up to now. Right up to now, when you've had an S asset, you know that it's kind of governed by the synthetics ecosystem. It's been put through, um, you know, a fairly rigorous process to get it to that point. And because all of the assets in V2 are connected, if one fails, they all fail. And mm -hmm. so it's very high stakes. Right. This shifts that paradigm. And now you've got a situation where you can have an S asset. Right. Um, you know, you could you could make some weird derivative of like, you know, curve cross asset swap volatility or something like that, right? Where you like look at all the different, you know, curve pools and the well, trades. What about something more vanilla, like the tri-crypto pool, right? Like, yeah. Just something yeah, super so, so, so you could you could have something that tracks some parameter within that pool, for example, right? And you could, you could essentially create an article that is reading that and then writing it. Um, back to the, the pool, right? Um, and if you want to use that for some reason to speculate on or as a hedge or something like that, right? Then the price of this asset that you create, this derivative that you create in this permissionless pool would track whatever that formula is that you've mm -hmm. applied, right? To the tracker pool. So you, you, you say, okay, we want to look at like, maybe it's the, you know, um, ratio of the assets, for example, right? Because you want to hedge if one of them goes to zero, and, you know, and like that, you know, obviously would wreck the pool to the tune of, you know, like 33% or whatever, right? You or know, just even to get either. like Delta neutral in, in the tri-crypto pool or something, right? So you find like a, a yeah. I, I know yeah. there's a bunch of like meta, there's like the meta factory tri-crypto pools are coming soon. I mean, Garrett, you know more about this, but essentially soon you'll be able to create any uh, three asset combination that you want. Um, yeah, and then and, you could track things like price oracle, price scale, uh, the LP token price. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
So, yeah. So, I mean, like something as simple as being able to hedge out that uh, for farming purposes, probably it has potentially has big demand. Yeah. And so, so let, let's say you, you leave that, right? And this is one of the interesting things as well is like, there's a lot of assets you can create that don't necessarily have a lot of demand, right? And so the, the test is, you know, is there demand for it? Like, does, has the market not built this yet because there's no demand or is the market not built it because it was too hard to build until mm. today and now we've got a better way to build it and so people can experiment more, right? Like that's the, the thing we'll figure out with a lot of these assets. So let's assume there is a lot of demand and you build it. Okay, so you build it and you convince, um, and this is you know where I think synthetics has kind of borrowed um, some of the thinking from Curve, right? Like how do you get um, uh, how do you get liquidity into a new pool, right? Well, you need to point some you know thing that says, hey, like let's get some liquidity in here, right? You know, you point some inflation or, or whatever, right, um, to incentivize people to add liquidity. So you've got this pool, you you know incentivize some people somehow to put some liquidity into it, right? Uh, get some people to experiment with it. Uh, now it's got a couple million dollars of liquidity. People start trading it. And then LPs are like, oh, this is a pool that's generating, you know, and we see this in Curve all the time, right? Like a new yeah. pool, something starts happening and people are like, oh, this looks, you know, exciting, right? Like, let me jump in there, right? So then people start, you know, pointing more liquidity at the pool. It scales up a little bit. Now you're at a point where let's say it's got, you know, 50, $100 million of liquidity in it and people are really using it. It's really cool, okay? But it's still a bespoke implementation. Right. This is where governance would then turn up and say, OK, we want to include this in the Spartan Council uh, pool, essentially. Right. Like we want to actually bring this into governance. And so there would be a vetting process of like, what is the article? How robust is it? You know, who controls it? Um, you know, what are the parameters around fees, et cetera? And so that pool could eventually be brought into the Spartan Council you know, pool. Uh, or that market could be attached to the Spartan Council pool, which would mean that it had like dedicated liquidity that would always be accessible to it um, because it's clearly a valuable thing. And so you've got this like experimentation area where anyone can do anything, right? And then if something works really well and it's super useful, then it can be kind of brought into this you know, larger thing where the vast majority, the assumption being the vast majority of people are just going to point their liquidity at the Spartan Council pool because you know it's managed well and you know this risk and all that risk mitigation and all that sort mm. of stuff yeah that's 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 an interesting answer i think like the, the like the discovery of new assets right you talk about like is it just too hard or is there just no demand for it um i, th I think like potentially some of the constraints that you find uh, between like working on a centralized exchange versus working in DeFi, right there's it's probably a gap of like things that probably could be built with more uh, dependencies uh, in DeFi, uh, but we just don't do it because it just creates too much centralization risk or um, it just the, the complexity is not uh, uh, like capturable in the, in the, in the small amount of uh, uh, like space to work with um, yeah. in the design space. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, like, do you expect, do you expect that, uh, there's going to be, I know you talked about like non-engineers or like non, uh, devs should be able to build. Do you, do you expect more like front ends to come out? Like, uh, kind of in the same way that like liquidity has, like you can build your own front end for liquidity. Like same, same, like I'm my own designer. Right. And I want to re skin Quenta. Right. And take out all the stuff I don't like or something. Mm. Um, is that in the future for synthetics? So 
we we recently passed, you know, governance passed, um, and I think one my, I felt like one of the impediments to this was not having like a formal liquidity like uh, fee sharing mechanism where you know front ends could uh, decide how much of the fees they want to capture, um, and you know, liquidity had that. It seemed to go pretty well. There were probably four or five solid front ends. You know, I definitely used one of the uh, less well used front ends. I just liked it. It was a it was a style that kind of you know made sense to me. Um, and so I think you know it had low market share, but you know I liked it, and, and so um, you know I used it. Um, and so I think that that uh, is the type of you know kind of ecosystem we want to foster. And recently we passed something to incorporate like a, a you know a fixed percentage of fees that go to front ends, um, that go to integrators. Uh, I think the challenge is probably differentiation a little bit and like the effort that's required, um, you know, to integrate synthetics. And that's a V2 problem right now. Maybe in V3 this gets better, but building a liquidity front end uh, was significantly lower lift, right? Than uh, building, you know, a, Quenta, for example, right? Now Quenta is open source. You could be a designer and you could, you know, fork it and, and you know, build your own version or whatever. Um, there's nothing stopping someone from doing that. We haven't seen much of that for whatever reason. Um, you know, again, maybe complexity, I, I'm not sure. Um, <clears throat> so ideally we want a very robust, um, you know, and, and kind of dynamic ecosystem of front ends. Um, we haven't yet seen it really it hasn't really emerged even though we've got the right incentives i would argue so there's something going on there hmm. yeah i'm i think we're all really uh looking forward to seeing how it, it it pans out over the next few months um you know it's been interesting to see the uh DeFi protocols how they've evolved like the ones that have been around since before DeFi summer right like how where compound is going and maker and uh synthetics uh and just the, the the changes that have been made like structurally in all of them. Um, I know that like people talked a lot about like how Maker and Synthetics were similar three years ago, right? And now it couldn't be any further from the truth, right? Um, yeah. yeah, like uh, Maker's moving towards like Rune's like in-game, like it's his in-game, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think, I don't think Synthetics is moving, like maybe that should be your next blog title is like, my end game for synthetic. Yeah. I think someone else is actually writing um, a blog post in the um, in the community that's called the Synthetics End Game. So um, <laughs> clearly, they, they picked up something from Rune, I guess, but it's not me. Um, you know, I, I think like even just talking about founder dynamics, right? For a second, um, you know, uh, one thing that I would argue is is pretty. Um, impressive, I would say, right, is like for the majority of the OG DeFi projects, the founders have far less power in them um, than they used to. Like even Rune, you know, getting on the maker forums and writing like, this is what I want everyone to do. And, you know, like he's got a lot of voting power, et cetera. Uh, but the ecosystem has become much more robust within Maker, right? Like there's pushback there, right? Like, you know, you can't just, I don't think Rune can just turn up and, and get his way. Yeah, necessarily. they have all their uh, subcommittees you know, and stuff, yeah. Yeah, like there's a whole bunch of, of stuff, right, that prevents a single person from just turning up and being like, I'm the king of this thing, I'm going to do what I want, you know. Um, and I think that's that's good, right? That's a good thing. I think that's that's evolved, right? And, you know, same thing goes for like Robert, Compound, um, you know, there's a whole system of 
governance delegates and you know like you can't just turn up and be like this is what i'm doing you know i like clearly um you know when you have a labs entity you still have a measure of control there right um but when the labs entity doesn't control what the functioning product does right it might be able to control like direction of you know movement in terms of future iterations like a uniswap style thing right where you know uni v4 is kind of being built in the open, but it's really be, being built by a centralized team, right? And then it'll be handed out to the community. But in terms of V3, you know, I don't think it, <laughs> anyone really has control of Uni V3 at this point. Yeah, uh, you know, which is probably a good thing. Wait, how do you how do you keep and maintain like the team to the point where you're able to iterate and maintain relevancy over like a multi year period? Because you know, we, we talk about it and I've mentioned all those incumbents, but you know, one thing they've all been able to do is, is, is iterate on their designs, right? Uh, we talked about Uniswap going from, you know, V2 to V3 and soon to V4. Aave's done a lot as well too. You guys have, have innovated a bunch. Uh, so like w what needs to be done internally uh, to maintain the uh, creative process uh, for your developers and, and also to like keep people on board for that longer period? So I think when you look at all of the OG projects that still exist, because there's a lot of OG projects that don't, right? That yeah. you know, just died off, right? Um, what separates them is not necessarily this like continuing, like well, continuous iteration, I don't think, right? I think that it was that they became sufficiently important in that nascent ecosystem, mm -hmm. that they gathered enough momentum, right? And they were also sufficiently idiotic in terms of how they approach these problems that it was obvious that improvements needed to be made right like no one could look at you know synthetics v1 or uh, you know or uniswap v1 or, or haven or compound v1 and be like this is the final form that this will take right like it was it became very obvious that you know there were cracks in in these things as soon as you know you put any pressure on them right because they were the first versions and so then it was like well this thing's really important and really interesting and really good, but super inefficient, we have no choice but to improve it, right? Um, and so I think that that was kind of the, the, like all of those projects that still exist today was that was it, right? Like, mm -hmm. I, you know, I include Maker in that, right? Like I was super, you know, I mean, Psy, if you want to go back, right? Like single collateral die, like it was, like it just obviously needed to be iterated on, right? And it was important enough that people kind of got stuck to it and we're like, okay, let's keep pushing this, right? So, um, you know, I think it's, it's kind of a market dynamic almost right um you know the market decided what was interesting and then those interesting things needed improvements and so the market kept iterating through you know the communities drove it yeah yeah and and I, I guess one thing to say about all of them too is that their founders are still there they haven't like gone off i think that's like the end goal right like i i, I talked to sam at frax and his end goal is like build the protocol big enough and and, and good enough that just like disappear into the ether one day right uh, yeah yeah, same thing. I, I, think, I mean, yeah. you know, I guess that's like, I'm still here, right? But I don't even come close to running synthetics. Like, it's not, you know, like, I run synthetics today, you know, to say like, some random guy who was in the Haven building had more control over synthetics than I do today. Right. Like it's just, you know, like it's just a different thing completely. Right. And I think the same thing is true for, you know, people like Robert, for example. Right. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, like I took six months off, um, you know, recently. 
right? I've only come back in the last like three months. I was gone. I was off the radar completely for six months, right? Um, and it was fine. And, you know, didn't have any impact because it, the system works. There's governance, there's a council, you know, different people stepped into the council roles, different people had different priorities, you know, um, engineers keep engineering, like the system just keeps, you know, plowing on. Well, I mean, but that's what you want in the end, right? Is like, oh should, yeah, should absolutely. be a relief, right? It should run on its own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, this it's some it's an interesting thing, right? When you talk about like founder dynamics and and you know why founders are important in startups and um, you know why ideally they're less important in in like a later stage DeFi startup, right? Um, one of the dynamics I would say that allows founders to be less important is one of the kind of critical things about DeFi, right? Which is that it is this self-organizing technology. You know, like we joke about DAOs and like they're not autonomous and blah, blah, blah. It's just a bunch of people in a room, whatever. And like, you know, those jokes are funny and whatever, but like we have a coordinate, like there's a coordination mechanism that's making this work, right? And it is a different coordination mechanism than a top-down hierarchical corporation. It's not the same thing. Like, like you couldn't just have you know the top management of any S and P five hundred corporation just walk out and not have like some huge issue. Like it would, the thing would struggle. Like you know, you could probably lose a CEO. It happens, right? You lose, you know, like, like. But if you took out the entire board and you know, C suite and everybody, group, yeah, yeah C suite, like. It would be chaos. It would just be utter chaos. It would probably look more like a, a DAO. It would look more like synthetics, right? Um, you know, until it figured out what the fuck it was doing, right? And so, you know, like when we talk about why DeFi is valuable, right? And why, you know, crypto, but specifically DeFi is valuable in terms of how you organize a financial system. It's because it is transparent. It's because it's self-organizing and it has that power it solves the regulatory problem in a different way, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that I think is most frustrating about like, um, you know, the kind of regulatory approach that's being taken is we want the same thing. We want transparent markets. We just see a better way of doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a better approach to getting the outcome we all want, which is transparent, open, fair, efficient markets. Like that's it. We're not in disagreement about that. We're not saying we want really shitty, you know, closed markets that, you know, like no, don't function properly. Like that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to build something. And we believe we have a technology that can achieve that, right? Without the necessary, you know, without having all the overheads of TradFi, right? Like it doesn't need, you know, huge, um, you know, edifices of, of regulatory oversight to make it work because it's transparent. And I think the very fact that, as a startup, you can hand it over to a community and the rules are so well functioning that it keeps working without that hierarchical, you know, top-down kind of control system is indicative of why it will work. Like that's the power, right? Um, and so, you know, for me, I think the fact that that's happened in a lot of projects where the community, you know, to a large extent runs things and, and the rules are there and clear and, you know, how the game is played kind of you know, plays out on its own, you know, somewhat autonomously, right, um, is is really important. Like, that's the thing that we're talking about. You know, that's that's the secret sauce. And I guess uh, that's probably a good place to wrap up on. I really like your comments about how the founder development and um, just like team structures and stuff. I, I think it's 
you know, we're, we're still only what six years into this whole experiment. <laughs> and so <laughs> still figuring it out. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, well, Kane, thank you so much for coming on. Um, really appreciated the talk and uh, we're very excited for synthetics V3. Yeah. Same. Yeah, absolutely. Pleasure. Awesome. Thanks guys. All right. Thank you.